verses 11 through 32 contain the final parable in this chapter. It's probably the best known parable of Jesus. Or I would say it's in a tie with the Good Samaritan. But I pray this morning as we hear this parable, it will be with fresh ears. After telling about the lost sheep and then the lost coin, Jesus says this. And he said there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, and ran, and embraced him, and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. He said to him, Son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Pray with me. Father, I pray that the poignancy of these parables will not be lost on us because of our familiarity with them. Stir our hearts, Father. Let the truth 
of these words of Jesus penetrate our hearts. Let them be like seeds that take root and bear fruit for your kingdom. Grant it, Father, to the glory of your name, I pray. Amen. 170. 170 people. That's the number of people we're praying for, church. Last week as we began our Who's Your One emphasis, where we are asking, Lord, who is the one person you would have us witness to? The one person you would have us share the gospel with? We asked you to respond by writing down their first names and bringing them up here so that we as a congregation can pray for them by name. One hundred and seventy. We started praying. Wednesday night, a portion of our worship service was devoted to praying for these names specifically. Our Sunday night prayer group will be praying for them. You are to be praying for your one. But the question I ask now is, what would God have us do? In other words, now that we are praying and we're beseeching God, part of our prayer needs to be, Lord, what would you have me do to reach this one? This is where we need to rethink how we see the church. Metaphors are often used to describe the church, to communicate something about who we are. One of those metaphors is that of a lighthouse. A lighthouse is firm and solid, standing on a rock that, that butts out into the ocean. A lighthouse warns ships of danger. A lighthouse serves as a navigational tool to guide ships away from the rocks into safety. And indeed, the church functions like that. We shine the light of the gospel. We warn of God's judgment. We shine the light of His grace. But I wonder if that image is enough. I wonder if that image, without meaning to, causes us to be passive. Because what good is a lighthouse if the ship is broken and can't sail? Take what happened, for example, in the year 1952 in February off the coast of Cape Cod. A blizzard, an unexpected powerful blizzard hit the Cape Cod area. The winds were howling, the waves were roaring, and a ship was at sea, a tanker, the Pendleton T2. The Pendleton was literally torn in two by the waves. The ship broke in half. The bow went down. Nine men were killed at that moment. The lighthouse that served on Cape Cod was no good to that ship. It couldn't navigate the lighthouse itself could not save them. What had to occur is what you see in the left picture where a boat was sent out to rescue the remaining 32 crew members. Someone had to go and get them because on their own there was no way that they would be saved. I would suggest to you and more than suggest, I would emphasize that in our thinking we need to see ourselves not as a lighthouse but as a rescue boat that goes out into the seas to share the good news of the gospel. In fact, that is what Jesus calls us to do. At the very beginning of chapter 15, there is a conflict that is arising the conflict is because of who Jesus is hanging out with. Tax collectors and sinners. You have to say that with a sneer. Ooh, tax collectors and sinners. Where's the religious hand sanitizer? 
You can't, you can't do that, Jesus. Everything the Torah teaches, you're going against. And not only talking with them, but look what it says. He's receiving them. He's eating with them. That's a step of fellowship. This wasn't that Jesus sees a sinner and says, hey, how you doing? This is that Jesus sees a sinner and says, hey, where are you going to eat? I'm going with you. Why don't you come on over here? We're having a meal tonight, and this was absolutely scandalous. So they're grumbling against Jesus. So Jesus tells them a parable. Look in verse 3. He told them this parable. Now, keep in mind that what happens is there are three parables that are told. But Jesus refers to it, or, or Luke does, in the singular. That tells me that these three parables are really about one thing. Three parables with one main point. So what I want us to do is to take a look and to see what are the commonalities of these three parables. What is the point or the points that Jesus is hammering home? We see at the very front that each of them share the commonality that something is lost. A sheep, a coin, and two sons. There are two sons that are lost. And each of those things that are lost are valuable. The sheep is valuable. The coin is valuable. The sons are valuable. In fact, you see this intensity increasing because we go from one sheep out of a hundred to one coin out of ten to now two only sons of this father. Now I say that both sons are lost because the first son, the younger son, he comes and he insults his dad in verse 12. When this son comes to his dad and says, give me the share of property that's coming to me, he is saying to his dad, I wish you were dead. The sooner you die, the sooner I get the money. So why don't you just go ahead and give me what's due? It's a son insulting his father saying, I don't care if you live or if you die, just give me what is mine. The other son's lostness is a little more subtle because he is there in his father's house. But he doesn't share his father's compassion and love and even anger. All the things that are lost are valuable. Notice what the, the shepherd does, the owner does. He searches for them. He searches because it's valuable. The coin is sought because it's valuable. The son is sought because he's valuable. Jesus is teaching us something here. Those that we consider lost are valuable to God. Every person has a value, is valuable in the eyes of God. Every person. It's something that we need to realize there are no throwaway people. Those that are seen but unseen, those that we look over, they are valuable to God. People have a worth that goes far beyond anything that we could imagine. Did you know in 2011, the New York Times reported that the U.S. government began wrestling with this question, how much is a human life worth? They were trying to draw up budgets. And so they were wrestling with how much money should we expend to save a life? You would not be shocked to realize that different agencies came up with different prices. 
The Environmental Protection Agency set the value of a human life at $9.1 million. The Food and Drug Administration declared that a life is worth $7.9 million. The Transportation Department determined that one life is worth $6 million. We'll spend $6 million to save someone after that. It's not worth it. How much is a life worth to God? I can tell you how much. It is worth the life of His own Son. How much is a life worth to God? A life is worth to God so much that He would leave the glories of heaven and come and walk this earth as a man and die on our behalf. The Scripture tells us that Jesus Christ died for the ungodly. You and I might say, I'm willing to sacrifice my life to save the life of my children or my grandchildren. We might even say, I would give my life to save someone that is a good and noble person. But you recognize that Jesus Christ died for the meth addict as much as he did for the businessman. Jesus died for the homeless and the holier than thou. Jesus died for the atheist and the arrogant. He says that all people are valuable in his sight. And that because of that value, he pays an infinite price to redeem all who would believe in him. Human life is beyond valuable. It's immeasurable in its worth. That's why a search is conducted. In each of the parables, a diligent search is made. It's interesting. Notice he says, what man of you having a hundred sheep if he has lost one? The normal pattern would be this. A man owns the herd, but he has a shepherd that would take care of the herd. So that if a sheep is lost, the shepherd goes and looks. That's not the case here. The name shepherd is not found in here. It is the owner of the flock himself that leaves the comfort of home and begins traveling the wilderness, the desert, and the wild area around him to find this sheep. This woman searches diligently. She lights a lamp. She sweeps the house. She seeks diligently until she finds it. It's that thing you have lost that you say, I cannot rest, I cannot stop until I locate it. This woman is tearing things apart. That's the third parable that things get a little more interesting. If we see the common pattern of a sheep owner searching for the sheep, a person that's lost a coin actively searching for the coin, where's this father searching? Some would say this, there's no searching in this parable. Others argue, also say this parable teaches relationship reconciliation without repentance. Let's dive into these questions a bit more. Notice the son, when he comes to his senses, realizes that the servants at his father's house have it better. And so he prepares a speech. He says in verse 18, I'll go and I'll say to my father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now it's interesting. That speech the son prepares is eerily similar to the words of Pharaoh in Exodus 10. That Pharaoh spoke to Moses to get the plague to stop. This gives an indication that the son's not at the point of repentance. He's hurting enough, he wants the pain to stop. And he wants to say what would cause the father to accept him back. But his heart is still in a sense of rebellion. He wants to butter dad up. So he goes home. This is where we understand that this father has been seeking his son. To understand what is happening, you have to understand that in the Jewish belief, there is 
a thing called the Ketsatsa. This is a ceremony that when a member of the community has offended a family member or another member of the community, that that community would disown that person at best. At worst, worst they would kill him, stone him to death. Now this son had not only insulted his father, he had insulted the whole clan. Remember, in most Jewish communities, you lived in a clan surrounded by family members. The wealth that this father gave his son was not stocks and bonds. The wealth he gave to his prodigal son was not gold. It would have been in property, sheep, and cattle. So how did the son get money? Well, the text tells us when he had sold all of the property, squandered the property. So you know what he did? He took the land that had been in his family for generations and he blew it. Before he left, he would have had to liquefy his assets. That means he would have sold all the livestock to get cash. And the community would have been aware of this. They would have seen land that had been in that community for years now being sold to a stranger. So you know what the community would have done when they saw that boy coming home? They would have met him and at best sent him away again. At worst, they would have killed him unless the father intervened. That's why what is written here is so powerful. Verse 20, he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Felt compassion, ran and embraced him and kissed him. This father had been looking for his son so that he could meet his son before the community did. Because if that dad does not intervene, his son would more than likely die. So this dad is looking and then he does something that would be unthinkable for a patriarch. He picks up his robe and he runs and he meets him and he embraces him and he weeps. And he says, my son that was lost is found. My son that was dead is at home. That's why verse 20 is crucial. This is God looking. This is God coming to meet us in Jesus Christ. And notice also, that's when repentance occurs. Notice verse 21. Then the son says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you I'm not worthy to be called your son notice he doesn't complete his whole prepared speech when the father speaks in verse 22 where it says but that's anticipating that the normal father would have said get out of here you ingrate how dare you come home but this father representing God says to him put the best robe on him he has come home I think at this point in response to his father's love the son repents what drives us to repentance is the love of our Heavenly Father that meets us where we are, that comes to us in Jesus Christ. Now, if God actively seeks the lost, is that not what we should be doing? That if we who say in the words of the old hymn, He sought me and bought me with His redeeming love, he loved me ere I knew Him, and all my love is due Him. Are we who have been bought by His blood, are not we called to go out and to seek the lost also, just as our Heavenly Father does? This past week, Jody and I caught a little bit of a movie called Hacksaw Ridge. It was fascinating. It's not for the faint of heart, I'll warn you. It's a story of Desmond Doss. Grew up in Lynchburg, Virginia. Desmond Doss is unique because he was the first man to ever win the Congressional Medal of Honor 
as a conscientious objector. Wanted to serve in World War II, but refused to carry a weapon. He went into service as a medic, unarmed. His squad of Marines, his platoon, were assigned to take Hacksaw Ridge. It's on a part of Okinawa. It's a ridge that goes straight up, and on top of it, the Japanese soldiers had embedded themselves. Wave after wave of Marines had assaulted the ridge, only to be pushed back off the edge. Desmond Doss's group, they climb up the net ladder. They get to the top, and they establish a point there. They, they establish it, but then at night, the enemy starts coming out of the tunnels they had burrowed underground. The battle's horrific. The Marines began to retreat, going back down the ladder. Desmond Doss is a medic, is one of the last, and he's getting ready to go over the edge. When, in true, I, I researched this, true to life, he prayed, Lord, what would you have me do? And at that moment, he heard the voice of a wounded American cry out, Somebody save me! And Desmond Doss ran back into the battle, alone. He pulled that man to the edge of the cliff, wrapped a rope around him, and lured him down. And then he got up again and went back into the battlefield. And for the next 12 hours, Desmond and Doss went back and forth and saved 75 men, luring them down. Every time, every time he went, he prayed, Lord, help me save one more. Help me save one more. Church, we are behind enemy lines. And we have a mission. Our mission is not to sit here and say, well, we're a lighthouse. Our mission is to go and to seek and to save. To seek and to witness. To seek and to tell. And when we do that, here's the common response. All three parables. There is joy. There is joy. Notice what happens. This man finds his sheep. He calls all of his friends. Come together. Come together. My sheep was lost. It's found. We're going to party. Come on. Let's get it on. Let's go. And they celebrate. And he says here, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99. The woman finds her coin. You know what she does? She gets on the phone. She calls her neighbors. Come over. Come over. I found my money. I'm going to spend Spend it on a party. Let's celebrate. This father, he throws a barbecue. Call everybody. Get everybody in. My son that was gone, the son that you all wanted to kill, he's back. We're going to celebrate him now. There's this huge celebration. I believe a church that has at its heart a passion for the lost is a church that will be joyful. Because it's a church that shares in the heart of God. That's, that's what we want. We want to celebrate. We've entered into one of my favorite seasons, that of March Madness. Love following the tournament. Jody and Emma even filled out brackets. Emma would nod her head at the team. She, she picked Liberty to win, by the way. Just saying. One of the reasons I love watching, it's the emotions. Jody, that bothers her when they'll show a kid crying because they got beat. She's like, I don't want to see that. Take the camera off of him. But I love seeing the celebration of the underdog. You ever seen a team that was supposed to get beat win? You ever seen their reaction? Do they go? Yay. No, they go nuts. They go, woo! Yeah! 
They slide. They're excited because they were the underdog. They weren't supposed to win. And against all odds, they did it. Church, God celebrates when a soul is saved. And a church that is passionate for the lost will experience the joy and the smile of God as people are saved. We'll say, whoa, I'll jump. I'll sing. I'll dance. You notice this party is not quiet. The older brother hears music and he hears dancing. How do you hear dancing? Somebody's cutting a rug. That's all I'm saying. Not everybody's happy. Remember, this is the parable of two lost sons. The older son hears what's going on. You mean, daddy's throwing a party for that reprobate? I've been here all this time. I've worked. I've been doing what I needed to do. And he never once even offered a goat for me. Now notice the love of the father. Look, if you will, at verse 28. The father sought the younger son. But notice with the older son, the father came out and entreated him. The father's still seeking. He comes to this older son, this Pharisee. And he entreats him. Come in and join the party. But the son can't. Do you notice that the parable's left on a cliffhanger? We don't know what the son does. Does he go in? Does he not? And that's the point. Church, now you and I are placed in the role of the older son. What will we do? Jesus is clearly directing it toward the Pharisees. He's saying, you're upset because I'm reaching the lost, God is happy that I'm reaching the lost. Pharisees, will you come and join in the search? The ball's thrown in our lap now. How will we respond to God entreating us to join the celebration? You see, this who's you one, it's a great idea. It's simple. But the bottom line is the effectiveness of it depends on you and I going, seeking, and telling. Otherwise, it's just words. So I ask you this morning that as we are committing to pray for those that do not know the Lord, by name, will you commit this morning to say, Lord, I want to tell. Now, we are praying with one another. We've, there's a table, an evangelism resource table that we've set up that's got some tracks on it, some things that you can check out to, to read, to encourage you, to help you think through how to share the gospel. But the bottom line is, our God seeks the lost. Are we a part of that? I want to ask you to bow your heads with me.